new semester together and uh, going to be an encouraging study. Uh, today we are working our way through all of chapter 6, Lord willing, of the uh, confession. And um, I, I think as we look through it, you'll notice that there's really nothing new there. Um, though I really like the way it's worded and presented in the confession. Does anybody not have a handout who needs one? I have two left. Got an extra one? I heard uh, you got an extra one there because the Beals know how to share. Okay, not all couples are that way. Just saying. All right, let me pray for us and uh, we will begin. Father, we are grateful for this day that we get to join together as your people around your word, indwelt by your spirit to be ministered to by you. We pray that you would bless our time this morning, that as we have your word open and we discuss this uh, very important topic of the fall of man and sin and punishment and, and uh, that topic that is not fun to talk about, but is a very important one because it's an aspect of our existence and a key aspect of us understanding uh, the gospel and, and really the teaching of the whole Bible. We pray that you would bless our time this morning. We pray that you would help us to uh, be focused on this subject, to be engaged in it, to see uh, how important it is for us to understand. Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word. We're grateful that you've given us a warm place to be inside where uh, we don't have to um, be in fear uh, nor in cold. We are grateful, and we pray for your blessing today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have two sheets remaining. Did people come in? Yes, I see that some people came in there whilst I had my eyes closed. Uh, hold on to that. You guys can share? Now, the question is, can you guys share? You, yes, oh, you can if you have to. Here you go, Greens. This is for you. Good morning. Well, thank you. Too bad. All right. So, we are picking up with our uh, study through the Second London Baptist Confession. And um, just to kind of recall where we have been, how we have gotten here, we are already on chapter 6. Yes, already on chapter 6. It only took one semester to get here. Um, and in doing so, we uh, started off in chapter 1 of the Confession looking at the Scriptures and, uh, and setting a foundation for all of our study. And, um, and that was very helpful in placing Scripture as the, the beginning and the center of our study. It's the source uh, from which we derive truth and it's the standard um, by which we measure all statements of religious truth. And so we will uh, begin with Scripture. We will be spending our time with the Bible open in front of us, and that will be the case certainly today. And, uh, and that's a very important thing. As we look at the confession, just to kind of call to mind why we're doing this, we are looking at um, considering making a doctrinal change or a change in our doctrinal statements as a church. And what we are considering is moving from our current statement to the confession, which is what we've been going through. And in order to do that, 
in order to make a, uh, a sound judgment determination on whether we ought to do that, we need to understand what it says. And so we are looking through it um, and to see what it says here. But as we do so, and at the beginning we commented on this, we need to keep it in mind all the way through as we're looking at this discussion that the Bible is our authority. It's our ultimate authority. It's what we go to and uh, it's where we start and it's where we end in our understanding, our, our seeking to understand what is uh, truth as it relates to our faith. And so what role does a doctrinal statement, what role does the confession play in relation to Scripture? Well, it does not take the place of Scripture. It is not Scripture. We are not uh, uh, saying that it is. What we are saying is that a doctrinal statement um, and the confession, what we're saying here is that it is scriptural. It is biblical. In other words, it teaches us, represents to us what the Bible teaches on a particular topic. That's the role it plays. And so in that sense, it has an authority. A doctrinal statement has authority in a church. It doesn't have final authority. Scripture has final authority. But it, it is, when we take a doctrinal statement, we are saying this statement represents and reflects biblical teaching on these different topics. Uh, that it represents um, uh, the, the, the statement of the faith that we uh, hold to. That when someone says, what do you believe? Well, if someone holds up the Bible, right? Your next question is, okay, what do you believe about the Bible? Because there are a lot of people who claim to be Bible people that we would disagree with on nearly every point because of the way they read the Bible, the way they interpret it. Um, and, and so we would, people who claim to believe the Bible hold to vastly different views on any number of doctrinal topics. And so just holding up the Bible and saying, this is what we believe, well, that's a true statement, but it's not helpful because there are so many subsequent questions that need to come after it where we explain, well, what do you believe about this? Okay, you say you believe the Bible. Tell me what you believe about marriage, for example, because there are people who claim to believe the Bible who take wildly divergent views on that. What about, um, what about salvation? Can a person lose their salvation? Well, people who claim to believe the Bible have wildly divergent views on that as well. So uh, just holding up the Bible and saying this is what we believe is true. It's a true statement, but it's unhelpful because so many subsequent follow-up questions need to be asked and, and that really is a part of what a confession plays, the role a confession plays. When we say, well, we believe the Bible, what do you believe about the Bible? Well, it's represented in here. It's represented in our statement of faith where we have described and explained what we believe about various things. And so as we're working through uh, the confession, we, uh, we started off in the place we ought to start off, which is the topic of Scripture itself, Okay and the role Scripture plays. From there, we moved into chapter 2, which was a discussion of God and the Trinity. And, uh, and it, I should comment also that, that even as we're working through these chapters, it's not as if there's a chapter that's a standalone chapter, right? Because the doctrine of God and, and the Holy Trinity here in this copy is only two pages. So are you saying there's only two pages of stuff to say about God and the Trinity? Well, of course not. But you can see it's spelled out in different topics uh, in different ways throughout the remainder of the confession, that it's all woven together. There's, there, is a, a, uh, um, there are further expressions and explanations of various things so that 
We don't just go to that one chapter and see all that it says about God and the Holy Trinity, though, of course, we are introduced to that topic in, in chapter 2. Likewise, we moved on to chapter 3 and God's decree that uh, God from all eternity uh, has established a plan of where He's going to go and what He's going to accomplish. In the mind of God, the determination of the purpose and the end for all things is the subject of the decree. And then, and then uh, chapter 4, where we got to the discussion of the creation, was the uh, introduction of the idea of this created order in which we live, right? Which, by the way, is the place where that plan is worked out. And we saw in chapter 5 uh, on the discussion of divine providence that the actual outworking of that plan that existed in the mind of God, as it were, in eternity, now works itself out in uh, physical, visible ways or in, in time, works itself out in uh, creation itself. And so that is God's providence. He is working those things out. And, and uh, so we spent a, a couple of weeks discussing that topic. Well, now we move on to our uh, chapter 6, the fall of mankind and sin and its punishment. And so um, the goal today is to get all the way through chapter 6. And I would encourage you to read through it, uh, read through the, the confession, chapter 6, and just think about what's said there. Um, you'll recognize all of it. Uh, you've been taught all of these things before, um, and so I would encourage you to, to work through and examine, and, uh, and then when, when the cross-references are listed, go look them up and think about the things that are being said in those cross-references. Think, think about uh, this uh, statement that's in the confession and see, does it line up with what Scripture teaches on this topic? There are a group of us who uh, go through this um, pretty much weekly. We are uh, working through and, and we'll spend time looking and discussing, uh, looking at and discussing each one of these uh, texts. And, and, and we recognize, yeah, it's that, that teaching is in the Bible here and there and all over the place. And so what we are going to do today is try to work our way all the way through chapter 6. And in doing so, uh, we're going to cover a lot of Bible verses, okay? A lot of Bible verses, and as I said at the beginning, there's nothing new in what we're going to talk about today at all. When we talk about the sinfulness of man, you talk about the consequences in uh, the life of man, in the will of man, in the actions and decisions and the sins of man, uh, etc., we're going to um, work through all of that. Now, in doing so, we're going to look at a lot of verses. If you, if you look on the page there, I, I didn't count them, but probably 20 different places you're going to end up turning to. And um, front row, would it be bad for me to turn the light off overhead? Would you be able to see, or, or would you rather just keep it on and then squint at the screen? You could see better. This way is good? All right. Middle row, I couldn't, you know, I just was concerned about the front row. You guys <laughs> lean back if you need light. All right. That, <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, pretty young group there. Not, not making any statements about the front row. I mean, you know. Do I have time to change? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what, what we want to do is uh, we're going to work our way through, and you'll notice I did not print out on your sheet there the paragraphs that are found in the, the chapter in the confession. Um, I will show them on the screen, and you'll have a chance to look at them and whatnot. And by the way, I encourage you to um, get a copy of the confession um, and uh, if you don't have one, we have a couple more we can give away. We're, and if, if you 
want one, we don't have one, we'll get more for you. It's something we want everybody to have and be able to look at. Um, in working our way through this, we want to ask and answer some questions. Question one in uh, our discussion today, how did man, who was created upright and in fellowship with God, fall into sin? How did that come about? When we discussed creation, we discussed the creation of man, we talked about his being created in the image of God, we talked about um, the relationship between God and man, we didn't really address man in his sin. And that's where we get today in chapter 6. That's where we begin to move in our discussion today. And so, uh, no surprise here, as we um, are looking at this, and these verses could be multiplied. Uh, but we're just going to look at the ones you have on, there on your page. I want you to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 2. We'll get to Genesis chapter 3 in just a moment as well. Genesis chapter 2. If I could have someone read uh, nice and loud verses 16 and 17 for us, please. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. All right, so there we have uh, in chapter 2 of Genesis, this is before the fall, you have a statement that there's a law being laid down. There's a rule being given, a command that is being given, and um, that promised life for obedience and death for disobedience. We've talked about this uh, quite a bit, but there, the way it's worded explicitly, uh, there is the threat of death for disobedience, which, if you look at it the other way, is the promise of life for obedience. So here's a law. Here's a standard being laid down. Do not eat of the, of the, the fruit of that tree. All right? So there's a law laid down. Uh, obeying that law would result in life. Disobeying that law would result in death. And of course, uh, we see what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 12 and, and, uh, and 13. The man said, so <clears throat> the, the serpent comes into the garden. The serpent uh, has this conversation with the woman in the beginning of chapter 3, and we've, we've studied through that. We've looked at his, uh, his uh, wily, devious, cunning nature in uh, tripping up the woman and then uh, eventually um, causing the woman to doubt God's word, to doubt uh, God's honesty, and she ends up taking the fruit, and then she uh, takes and gives it to the man who is there with her, and he eats it. And we read in uh, verse 12, the man said, so in, in defense, speaking to God, describing what happened, the woman whom you gave to be with me, a little bit of blaming God there and blaming the woman, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So that's how it came about. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's a whole lot going on there in the passage, but what you can see is that the serpent came in and deceived Eve by cunning, and then she gave the forbidden fruit to Adam, and they both fell into sin. That's how sin enters the picture, enters into the experience of mankind. And so remembering the, the command that we had been given, they had been given back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, do not eat of the fruit of that tree. And chapter 3 is them actually eating of the fruit of that tree, which is direct disobedience. That's the, the entrance of sin into 
the picture and into the experience of mankind, and that is the first uh, step of that. And so when we ask our question, how did man who was created upright and in fellowship with God fall into sin, we might think about our answer and how we might answer that question. Here's how it's answered in uh, chapter 6 and paragraph 1 of the Confession. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to His own glory. So there's a lot in that statement, a recognition that uh, Adam and Eve were created upright. They received this righteous law which promised life and threatened death, but that's not the way things remained for very long. Command was given in 2.16, and by 3, we're already falling out of that. And so, uh, Satan is behind this um, deception, this cunning of the serpent, comes in and seduces Eve, and then she gives to Adam, but he uh, was, it says here, without any compulsion, without any compulsion, he looked at it, examined the situation, decided to jump in, right? And so, so now we have, we have sin entering the picture, and so with all that going on, they did willfully transgress the law of their creation, the command given to them in eating the forbidden fruit, and God was pleased to permit it for His own purposes and for His own glory. There's a, there's a lot packed in there, but there's nothing new. It's sad and it's tragic but it's descriptive of how we wind up in the position that we're in as fallen humanity. So that's paragraph one in its entirety. Any questions on paragraph one? By the way, just on that topic of questions, I would encourage you, I had intended to bring a little half sheet of paper and I just ran out of time. Um, write down your questions. If, if we run across something in this paragraph, in, in our discussion, we run across something where you have a question, you don't understand it, how does this fit with that, or what does this mean that, or whatever, write those questions down. Even if, even if you just take your Connect Group study guide or, or, or something that's in your Bible and, and just write the note on it and keep it there, and keep it there, you, you will find many of those answers uh, come later on in later discussions. Or it may be that that question hangs on and continues to nag at you, and we will have periodic opportunities for you to bring that question up and ask us so that we can deal with that. We want to be able to address that. Okay, so write those questions down, and I know you're thinking, I'll just remember the question. No, you won't. No, you won't. <laughs> write it down, okay? Write it down. Any questions on this paragraph one? Yes. Uh, at this point in the, in the conversation, uh, no, and we could recognize that um, this happened uh, without uh, any compulsion, so Adam was not made to do this, 
Now, God was pleased to permit it for His own purposes. The specific details of how those things work together is an important discussion, but probably not when we're laying the foundation at this point. Okay? All right, moving on to our second question. And again, we're just working our way through the paragraphs of the confession. Moving on to paragraph two, uh, we might ask the question, what were the results of this fall into sin? What were the results of this fall into sin? Now, you could look around. You could just observe, right? You could, you could turn on the news for eight seconds, right? And you'll, and you'll recognize what the, what the results were. But of course, um, just as our experience uh, puts on display very clearly what were some of the results uh, also in the confession uh, and, and, and pointing to Scripture, we see it all over the place. So we have a number of passages. And um, does anyone know Romans 3.23 right off the top? Of their head. All have sinned. So we don't start off well, do we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, that's the go-to statement when we talk about sin. We talk about its effects uh, or its existence and, uh, in, in our experience, in our situation and condition as humans. Uh, we could also look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Some of you have that memorized as well. If I get there before you say it, I'm going to read it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, so sin comes into the world through this one man. So we, we read about in, in uh, uh, Genesis 2 and 3 very briefly of uh, the entrance of sin into the world. We have uh, Paul's statement that sin came into the world through man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This becomes the experience not of two people somewhere in Eden. This becomes the experience of all of us. We all enter into that. And we, we spent um, quite a bit of time discussing um, the, how those things exactly relate. Uh, but this passage is very clear here. And, and really the rest of Romans chapter 5 is spelling out that fact that sin enters um, humanity in Adam and then spreads to all of us, that we sinned in Him, that the, uh, the bent to sin, the propensity to sin uh, becomes ours as well, and uh, we follow up with all actual sins that we do. Titus 1, 15. All right, so we have... We have a statement here that to, to the pure, all things are pure, but um, that's not the condition uh, that, that man uh, finds himself in, right? And particularly here, uh, to, the, to, the un, to, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. That, that sinful humanity has inherited not just um, a want to to sin, it goes it goes all the way down into defiling our very understanding, defiling um, our minds, defiling our assessment of what is good and, uh, and what is right, right? Defiling their minds and their consciences. Even the ability to assess on our own um, what is good, even that capacity has been defiled uh, by sin. And so you can see the spread of sin 
uh, all through humanity. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. We have a statement here of mankind's condition. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Talk about a negative assessment of the condition of mankind. The fallenness and the the corruption, even into the desires and the will of mankind. The intention of the, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, you say maybe that was... Um, maybe that was just the condition before uh, the flood because the flood is about to come. This is the Noah situation. Maybe it's going to wipe out. Uh, maybe that was just a particularly evil time in humanity. Well, what do you read in, in chapter 8 and verse 21? This is after the flood. The flood has subsided. Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The nature of man is not changed by the flooding and washing of the earth. The nature of man remains the same, that this sin has spread and corrupts us uh, uh, thoroughly. Which, of course, is what we read as well, Jeremiah 17, 9. When someone says, just follow your heart. I, uh, I think of this verse first. Secondly, I think of Napoleon Dynamite. Um, but first, I think of this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You're going to follow that? Give me a break. Right? So the, the corruption, the sin has entered, and it's not just shown in things that we do. But it's, it's right down into our very heart, into the deepest part of us. We are fallen uh, creatures and affected sinfully in these ways, which is what Paul says also in Romans chapter 3. And uh, not the um, most pleasant uh, statement there in Romans 3 of the condition of mankind, verses 10 through 19. But man's basically good, isn't he? Paul says, quoting from the Old Testament, this is a string of quotations from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul concludes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now this is not saying that mankind is as bad as he could be. This is not saying that God does not restrain evil. He does restrain evil. And our expressions of our evil and sin often take um, uh, forms that are deceptively beautiful and nevertheless self-serving and selfish. 
The, the point here is that the, um, what were the results of this fall into sin? They went all the way down to the core of who we are, and we see it in the world all around us. The confession moves on in the second paragraph. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. We're defiled. Not just in one part, but in all the faculties, parts of soul and body. And so the fall affects us right down to um, every aspect of who we are. And again, this statement is different than saying we are as bad as we could be. But we're just saying that the, what, what the Bible is arguing here is that the corruption extends to every part of us. Our mind is not accepted. A lot of people uh, will think, well, yeah, you know, there's the sin in the world and stuff like that, but, but if we just think rightly, we can, surely we can reason our way out of that. We trust our mind so much. Well, your mind has fallen too. And your mind is corrupted too. And if the Bible doesn't teach us how to think, we're not going to know how to think right. And even then, we need to hold ourselves um, uh, in question. Scripture is right. Is my understanding of it right? Well, I need to be a little bit more humble on that regard. Right? And so the fall extends to our will, to our heart, to our minds, to all of us. Okay? Any questions on paragraph two? I'm going to move on before Lou raises his hand. <laughs> I can see the, see the wheels moving. All right, next question. If you come up with a question, you can ask us later. Next question. How is the sin of Adam and Eve passed to the rest of mankind? What is the mechanism? How does this work that this sin of Adam and Eve is passed on to the rest of mankind? Well, turn to Romans chapter 5. And uh, we spent some time talking about this. We've uh, talked about this passage a number of times uh, because it is so clarifying and helpful for us in, in regard to answering this exact question of how the sin of Adam and Eve passed to you and me. Uh, Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So this passage um, is, when you think about it, when you ponder on it, uh, clarifies in any number of ways our relation to Adam and Eve, how they stand, how Adam stands <clears throat> as the federal head for us, representing us, so that when he was there in the garden and this law was given to him, he was not just a private person, so that if he got in trouble, it was only him getting in trouble. Or so that if he obeyed the law, only he would get the rewards. He was standing as a public figure for us, representing us in himself. So when that law was presented to him, and he was going to decide, uh, take and eat or obey, he was doing so on our behalf. I use the example of the federal government of the United States, and if they were to declare war on Antarctica, you and I, Americans, would be at war with Antarctica. My wife's Canadian, so she would be excluded. But she would be the only one. The rest of us would be. And the rest of us are thinking, well, I'm not mad at Antarctica. The penguins, what did they do wrong? But we're at war with them because our federal head declared war. Right? And so when we look at uh, what happened, Adam and Eve, Adam particularly, was standing in our place, and he was presented with this situation. He faced temptation, and he fell into sin. When he fell into sin, the consequences of that sin come to us, to all of those who are descended from him by natural generation. And so that means we inherit his sin, we inherit his guilt, we inherit his death, we inherit his punishment. All that stuff is ours. We say, well, I didn't do that. Well, no, but your representative did. I didn't declare war in Antarctica. Your representative did. On the other hand, <clears throat> as this passage spells out for us, there is a second Adam. And, and the, first one, the first one was a type of the one to come. This last Adam, Jesus, stands in the face of temptation and in the face of all that he faced, not as a private individual. So that if he obeyed, he gets the rewards. And if he were to disobey, he would get the consequences. He represents us. He represents all those who are united to him by faith. So that when he faced temptation and he passed the temptation, he did so on our behalf. And when he lived a life of righteousness when he died a sacrificial death on the cross, when he was raised from the dead, he did so on our behalf so that he represents us in that and we inherit the benefits of that because he is our representative. See, by faith we move from being in Adam where we inherit all of these things. By faith we move from that when we trust in Christ, we are united to Christ and we inherit his blessings and his benefits. Right? And so this passage spells out both of those. There's a lot more to develop there, uh, and I've, I've talked about it at length. <clears throat> so we'll, we'll go ahead and move on. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, talks about it as well. If you'll turn to that passage, he's talking about resurrection there. So the, the topic is slightly different, but he hits, you can tell the same type of thinking is behind Paul's reasoning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, As in Adam all die... Same language as Romans 5. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so in Adam, all die. And we see the promise of the gospel here, the promise of uh, resurrection life in Christ, because he was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead uh, in him. And so down, look down to verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So you see they're similar to one another. They're compared to one another. We have the language of first Adam, last Adam. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So right now, uh, in this life, even we who've placed our faith in Christ... There, there have been certain changes that have already taken place, and certainly we, ha- we have an entirely different expected inheritance guaranteed to us, promised to us by God, that the, the inheritance that will be ours, that will be brought to completion, is the inheritance of Christ. But because we were born in Adam, we still suffer consequences that some have been alleviated, some have not, so we will still die a consequence of being in Adam. We will still die. We still deal with sin. We still struggle. So there's a, there are aspects that, that have already changed, and there are aspects that will change, that have not yet changed, but, but they will, that are guaranteed us in Christ. And so the question is, how is the sin of Adam and Eve passed to the rest of mankind? Well, it's passed, first of all, in that they represent us. And so when Adam took that fruit it's as if we did, and we inherit the consequences. But then also, uh, and so we sinned in Him, just like we declared war on Antarctica when the federal government did. We sinned in Him, but uh, we also inherit the corru- corruption that He inherited, so that we now have our own desire to sin, so we follow suit. And we commit actual sins in our lives. And we inherit the consequences of those. And this is uh, something what uh, David was talking about in uh, Psalm 51, and uh, in verse 5, where he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This doesn't mean that his parents were sinning when he was conceived. This means that David is recognizing that from his very conception, he was a sinner, just like you and just like me. Job 14 and uh, verse 4 points out that um, clean things do not come from unclean things. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. The idea being that there is an organic relationship between our sinful first parents and, uh, and our own sin. We follow suit. We're genetically related, not just, not just genetically as in physically and whatnot, but spiritually as well. My mom's here. I feel bad saying that, you know. <laughs> We're both sinners. <laughs> All right. Um, so we need to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, you see the rest of those verses there? I'm looking through. They're all continuing a very similar theme. A very similar theme through all of them. 
Uh, in Ephesians 2 and verse 3, all of us once lived after the flesh. These are not quotes. This is my kind of summary for myself here. Pursuing our own desires, we were all children of wrath by nature. Romans 6.20, we were all born slaves of sin. Uh, 5.12 that we just looked at, sin and death are common to all those who are in Adam. Hebrews 2.14 and 15, we were subject to lifelong slavery. But the little peak of hope, <coughs> hope there in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus delivers from the wrath to come. So there is hope uh, given there. But the question that we're addressing is how is the sin of Adam and Eve passed to the rest of mankind? The answer given in the confession, paragraph 3, they, they being the root, and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. By the way, who's excluded from this? Jesus. Being now conceived in sin, those of us descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I think there's, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that. Uh, that, that there is a degree of speculation that's involved in that question. So the, the, the question is about um, being, being the seed of Adam is the problem that we all have that Jesus does not have. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and, I, and I, I would agree with that. I think I would, I would agree with that. Um, I would want to chase that down a little bit more. But, but we can see that Jesus is uh, conceived not by ordinary generation. That he's, he's not only one of us. He's one of us. But He's not only one of us. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Next question. How does this original sin relate to the sins that we commit? Are we talking, are we speculating about something that happened long ago? And, and uh, so the question is, how does that original sin relate to the actual sins that we commit? And so we're going to uh, look at a few verses here. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. If somebody has it, go ahead and read it nice and loud. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. All right, so here we have... Uh, the mind set on the flesh. What's the result of the unbelieving mind? Much like what he said earlier in Romans chapter 3, it is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? And so you can see the relationship. The original sin does, does a number on, on our, our mind, on, on all of us, including our mind such that our mind is hostile to God and therefore won't and can't submit to God's law. Now that, that we've, we've preached on that, we've taught on that, but it is, it, is, it is contrary, I think, to our natural thinking about all of this. Sometimes we might think, if I could just get them to understand, if I could just get this unbeliever to understand, surely he'll want to follow God. 
if he continues in his fallen mind, he can't. He doesn't want to. He's dead. Even the mind. Right? And so that, that changes. That, what that shows is that this original sin affects us all the way down. It's not a stain that's on the surface that needs to be scrubbed off or, 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 or some, uh, you know, somehow whitewashed or something like that. It's a, it's a corruption that goes all the way down. That makes it so, according to Paul there in Romans 3 and in Romans 8, makes it so man is actually in his mind hostile to God. That's the condition of fallen man. Colossians 1 and verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled. Where, what, what were you like? Alienated from God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. Right? Corrupted in the very root preferring rather to do evil than to follow God. In James uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15 is a, is a familiar um, passage for you here. Thank you. So our question here is, how does original sin relate to the sins that we commit? Well, original sin... It, it, it corrupts our want to, and then we follow our want to. We follow our desires, we follow our heart, and we end up in sin. We end up committing sin, right? Which is what Jesus said. Does anybody have Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 <clears throat> offhand? You're going to recognize it as soon as it's started. Thank you. So all of those sins are not forced upon us. There might be times when that kind of thing happens, but he's saying, where does sin come from? Oh, it flows from right here. <laughs> it flows from within. It didn't take a force outside of you to bend you to its will. You followed your own will and ended up there. That's what Jesus says. And so <clears throat> the question that we're asking is how does this original sin relate to the sins that we commit? And the answer given in the Confession, paragraph 4, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, sounds like Romans 3, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Where do those transgressions come from? That corruption, this original corruption it's mentioned here, right? Moving on to our next and final question. What is the relationship between sin and the believer? What is the relationship between sin and the Christian? We have a number of passages we want to look at here. Uh, starting in Romans chapter 7, there, were, there are some, and I'm, I'm aware of this, and I preached on this, and <clears throat> I've taught on it. There are some who would argue that, that Romans chapter 7 is a picture of Paul uh, um, before he came to Christ. And, I, and, and there, are, there are reasons I argue against that. There are a number of reasons I argue against that. One is that I see myself in Romans 7. Don't you? It seems contrary to, uh, to what's on the, on the plain page of Scripture and, and evident in your life to argue that this is 
um, that this is only the pre-converted person that's discussing it. That's, but that being said, and I, I know they have more reasons than that, and that me saying that wouldn't convince them, and we could talk that, about that another time, but, but um, look at Paul's language here in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul here is saying about himself. Now, if he were talking about himself before he was a Christian, what do we know about the fallen mind? Does the fallen mind really want to do good? No, we just read that that's not the case. It's actually not able to do that, Romans 8, 7, right? And so here he's saying, he's describing himself in his Christian life, talking about the wrestling that goes on between him and sin. And he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's something that fights against me. I want to do what's right, but I, but I struggle. Why do I struggle if I want to do what's right? Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Christian, we still have this law of sin dwelling on our members. It's still there. There are certain things that have changed absolutely about us as Christians. We moved from Adam into Christ. There are other things that still remain and have yet to be resolved and will be in glory, praise God. Um, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, that's the Old Testament, um, Romans 3.23. Does anyone have that one? That's the one where uh, Solomon says, no one, uh, there's no, no one who's righteous and never, uh, and never sins, right? No one is so righteous that he never sins. Um, uh, 1 John 1.8, right? John here, who is clearly writing to Christians, and he's writing to Christians to help them understand that they are Christians. And what does he say in verse 8 of chapter 1? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christian, we still have sin that we deal with. We still have sin that we deal with. And I could continue on. I should have kept, had you keep your finger there in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Paul continues on that argument. And as you meditate on Romans 7, you see yourself in it. But he continues on. He says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. We still are in this condition where we are susceptible. We deal with our own uh, internal longings and desires for sin, as James would say in James chapter 1. We still wrestle with that, and, and, and we've not been set free from that yet entirely. We've been absolved of the guilt of it because Romans 8, 1, he would say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there's still the ongoing presence and wrestling match that we deal with. Our question that we're asking is what is the relationship between sin and the believer? Rome, uh, Galatians five seventeen. We exist in a condition, thank you Andy, we exist in a condition where the, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, these are opposed to each other, 
keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We are still in this body that is fallen. We still wrestle with sin. We still deal with sin. It is still a present reality in our lives, though the penalty of it has been paid for. And though, by God's grace, He is, he is sanctifying us so that its, its, its power diminishes as we more and more look to Christ and, and, and grow in the Christian life. And, but we still, and we will never change from being in this condition of present with sin, at least in this life. When we die, when we are resurrected, we will no longer experience any sin will be done away. We will be free from it. But that's not the condition we're in now. So the question, our last question, what is the relationship between sin and the believer? And uh, paragraph number five of the confession says, the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. That means those who have uh, been made alive in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. You must be born again. That's what it means to be regenerated, to be born again. So those who are genuinely converted, the corruption remains in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. We still deal with sin. We will not be set free from the presence of sin in this life. So our, uh, we've looked at our questions very briefly. We've got three minutes left. So if you can um, ask a question that I can answer in three minutes, I'll, I'll open that up to you in just a moment. But um, I, I, want, I want you to have um, just a grasp that what we're saying here is, is an explanation of the things that we've been learning in the Bible these last years. As we've had the Bible open, we've been learning about um, uh, all of these aspects about original sin, how it affects us, about sin in the believer, etc., etc., is just summarized in this section. And I hope what we can see in, in looking through uh, chapter 6 of the Confession is that this is, this is a biblical statement. It's not the Bible. This is the Bible. But it is biblical. It's representing to us the teaching of Scripture. And it's done uh, in such a fashion that it asks and, and answers important questions that we need to have uh, in our minds. We need to have a grasp on these things. And so um, it's very helpful. Chapter 6 is very helpful in, in us formulating our understanding of the fall of man, of sin, and, and consequences to us, etc. Now you have two minutes. Any questions? Absolutely. Absolutely does away with sinless perfection. Yeah, this, even just this paragraph right here, right? Um, though uh, sin through Christ is pardoned and is mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin, and that's our condition until we die, until we're set free from this body of death. Yeah. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that uh, you have been gracious to us because we have seen ourselves in this chapter. We recognize our own fallenness, the effects of sin 
in our lives, the actual uh, sins that we have pursued and committed, the effects of those on other people, and we recognize that we don't deserve any good from you, and yet you give us Jesus. You gave Jesus to be the last Adam, the one who faced temptation and stood strong in obedience to you in the face of it, who lived his life obediently, who loved you and his neighbor from the heart, joyfully, who honored you in keeping the law, and who went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that I have committed. I who am not a lawkeeper. And yet Jesus did that for me. You sent him to do that for me and for us. So we rejoice that though this is a, a description of us and it's dark and difficult, yet it is one uh, that um, is not the final word that we do have Christ our Savior who has redeemed such people. And we have hope that, uh, that we, we see sin already dealt with, the consequences of it. We will not be condemned for it. And we see your Spirit at work in our lives to separate us uh, more and more from sin, even in this life. And we uh, eagerly anticipate that time in glory when we will not have to uh, wrestle with temptation, with our own sins, uh, or being sinned against. We will get to be in, in joyous fellowship with you and with one another as you've created us. We rejoice in that. We look forward to that time. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.